Uh, good morning, everyone. Uh, thanks, Stephen. And can I say uh, thank you to you uh, for your feedback, uh, both personally and via email, that you gave me after last Sunday's slight restructuring of the service based on Nehemiah chapter 9, where we said reading precedes confession, and confession precedes worship. And, and so we changed the structure of the service around slightly last Sunday morning, and I know lots of you found that helpful. So, so thank you for your, your feedback. But please turn again with me to uh, Nehemiah chapter 9, and we're going to pick up from where we left off last week, which is right at the end of that chapter and right at the end of that incredible prayer of confession, which finishes in, in verse 37. As you look that up, let me ask, how many of you are familiar with the Wesley Covenant prayer? How many people are familiar with the Wesley Covenant prayer or the covenant service? Can you stick your hand up for me? Right, just a handful of people. That's fascinating, actually. Uh, it's, it's often celebrated on the first Sunday of a new year in many Methodist churches. And it's a service and it's a prayer that encourages members of Methodist churches to make a distinctive resolution on an annual basis. It, it dates back to 1970 or 1955, whenever John Wesley created this service and he created this prayer based on material from Puritan writers at that, that time. And over succeeding generations, ever since the mid-1700s, this prayer and this service has been used and it's kind of been refreshed. And its use is as an invitation, it says here on the screen, as an invitation for people to renew their covenant relationship with God. And so the aim of the covenant service is to help people hear from God again, to hear God's call, God's challenge, and it's also to provide an opportunity for people to make a very particular response. L let me show you the traditional version of, of this covenant prayer of commitment, and, and I'm going to read it, and I'm going to read it really slowly. Here it is. I am no longer my own, but thine. Put me to what thou wilt. Rank me with whom thou wilt. Put me to doing, put me to suffering. Let me be employed for thee or laid aside for thee. Exalted for thee or brought low for thee. Let me be full, let me be empty. Let me have all things, let me have nothing. I freely and heartily yield all things to thy pleasure and disposal. And now, O glorious and most blessed God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, thou art mine, and I am thine, so be it. And the covenant which I have made on earth, let it be ratified in heaven. That's a powerful prayer. It's a scary prayer. But the reason I've started here and with that prayer this morning is because when we come to the end of Nehemiah chapter 9 and as we go on into chapter 10, the people of God are engaged 
in a similar exercise. They're, they're doing a similar thing. They make an agreement with God and before God, and they put it in writing, and they seal it. Here's the, the last verse of chapter 9. If you have a Bible open or you have it on your device, but here it is on the screen. Here's the last verse of chapter 9. In view of all of this, now in view of all of what? Well, in view of reading Scripture and in view of having confessed and offered a prayer of confession, in view of all this, we are making a binding agreement, putting it in writing, and our leaders our Levites and our priests are affixing their seals to it. You see, these people were experiencing personal and corporate renewal and revival. And it began with a hunger, an appetite for God's word. We saw that back in chapter 8. That's where it started. And that led to this heartfelt, genuine confession and mourning over their sin as we thought about last week. And so having read Scripture, having confessed their sin, they're now making a commitment, a new commitment, a written commitment to back up and demonstrate and affirm their desire and their resolve. It's, it's a bit like the covenant prayer and service at the beginning of each new year in Methodist churches. This, for these people, was a milestone moment. And as we have tracked their story at the start of this new year, and as we have launched our 40 days, I, I think it's fair to say, and a number of you have shared this with me, I think it's fair to say that many of us recognize and identify with the need to be renewed. The, the need to be revived in our faith, and, and in our worship, and in our discipleship. And therefore, the challenge of the past couple of weeks regarding our engagement with Scripture and our confession of sin is being embraced. Many of you have shared that with me. Somebody came in this morning and said to me, David, I've read so much of God's Word this morning, my head's just full. That's, that's incredible. Brilliant, but I know lots of you are embracing this appetite and this hunger to re-engage with Scripture, with God's Word, and with confession of your sin. Well, today, I invite you to keep going. I invite you this morning on the 15th of January, we're still in the third Sunday of 2017, I invite you to put down another marker, to make a new commitment, a renewed commitment. In fact, and what I'm actually encouraging you to do is make a written commitment this morning. I'll explain more later, but I'm inviting you to make a written commitment this morning. To God's word. And to an ongoing response to God's word as he is speaking to us through what we're reading in Nehemiah's, Nehemiah's story. So please, if, if you are able, can I invite you to stand with me for the public reading of God's word. We're going to read the last verse of chapter 9, and then we're going to read on into chapter 10. So let's stand together. I don't have it on screen this morning, sorry. So if you can lean over and share with someone, great, or look it up on your phone or whatever. But here is God's word. In view of all this, we are making a binding agreement. We're putting it in writing, 
And our leaders and our Levites and our priests are affixing a seal to it. Those who sealed it were, now if you've got a Bible, you'll notice lots of really unpronounceable names. I'm not going there. Never do, and I'm not making any doubt change this morning. Right? So jump down to verse 28. The rest of the people, priests, Levites, gatekeepers, musicians, temple servants, and all who separated themselves from the neighboring peoples for the sake of the law of their God, together with their wives and all their sons and all their daughters and all who were able to understand, all these now join their fellow Israelites, the nobles, and bind themselves with a curse and an oath to follow the law of God given through Moses, the servant of God, and to obey carefully all the commands, regulations, and decrees of the Lord our God. We promise not to give our daughters in marriage to the peoples around us or take their daughters for our sons. When the neighboring peoples bring merchandise or grain to sell on the Sabbath, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on any holy day. Every seventh year, we will forgo working the land and will cancel all debts. We assume the responsibility for carrying out the commands to give a third of a shekel each year for the service of the house of our God, for the bread that's set out on the table, for the regular grain offerings and burnt offerings, for the offerings of the Sabbath at the new moon feast and at the appointed festivals, for the holy offerings, for the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel, and for all the duties of the house of our God, down to verse 37. Moreover, we will bring to our storerooms of the house of our God to the priests the first of our ground meal, of our grain offerings, of the fruit of our trees, and of our new wine and olive oil. And we will bring a tithe of our crops to the Levites, for it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all the towns where we work. Verse 39, the people of Israel, including the Levites, are to bring their contributions of grain, new wine, and olive oil to the storerooms where the articles for the sanctuary and for the ministering priests, the gatekeepers, and the musicians are also kept. We will not neglect the house of our God. Grab a seat. So here's the, uh, here's the first commitment they make. The first commitment they make is to obey or to submit to God's word. But before we, we kind of think about that, I, I want to talk about the example and role of leadership in all of this. From verses 1 to 27, the verses that I skipped, you do have a list of names, a list of people who, who signed up for this, who were the first to sign the dotted line, and all of them, and there's actually over 80 names in that list. All of them. Nehemiah was first, which is interesting in itself, but all of them were leaders. You see, those in leadership stepped up and out first. They set an example. They didn't expect people to do something that they weren't prepared to do and model themselves. They took the lead. And they committed themselves to this covenant before others joined in. And for those in leadership here, and, and I include myself, and, and this is where it gets uncomfortable, that in itself acts as a powerful and sobering reminder about our responsibility as leaders. Our responsibility to live lives before God and before this community of integrity. It's all about our commitment, our example, 
our leadership in this place and at this time. And so these leaders were the first to sign up to ongoing renewal and revival. But in verse 29, we then read that, that all the people sign up. And what do they sign up to do? Well, look again at verse 29. They sign up to follow the law of God and to obey carefully all of the commands and all of the regulations and all of the decrees. These people had spent hours on their feet. Many of you know this. They had spent literally hours on their feet listening to God's word being read to them, and it had impacted them. And they'd already responded in deep confession and worship, but ultimately the key issue was, and it still is, were they going to live by this word? It's not enough to just hear it. It's not enough just to read it. Are you going to live by it? Were they going to allow God's word to shape and influence them? Were they going to submit to it? Were they going to do what it says? Was God's word going to dictate their attitude, their words, and their actions? And the, the, the question I've been asking myself this week, and I'm asking you this morning, is are we going to live by God's word? You see, as the Apostle James will write much later on, as he reflects on the mirror-like quality of God's word, he says, listen, do not merely listen to the word. And so deceive yourselves, but do what it says. And these people were making a commitment to do what it says. They were making a binding agreement with God. They were putting it in writing and saying, God, we are going to obey your word. We're going to follow it carefully, closely. And that resolve and that submission and that decision remains a key challenge for us here today. God's word has got to get under our skin. It's got to have full reign in every compartment and department and segment of our life. It's got to guide us. It's got to inform us. It's got to expose us. It's got to teach us. It's got to correct us. It's got to realign us. It's got to direct us. It's got to be our go-to reference point. It's got to be our source of information and transformation that not only profoundly affects our lives, but also affects those around us and our communities. Let me read you this quote. A contagious enthusiasm among Christians for the word of God and a return to faith and obedience to its precepts will do more to point the way out of the present world distress and despair than all the plans and strivings of man. I know that's a big statement. But I suppose the one question for us this morning is this. Do I have, do you have a developing, contagious enthusiasm for God's word and for obeying it? The people of God's first commitment or recommitment was to this. We're going to obey. We're not just going to read. We're not just going to listen. We're not just going to hear. We're going to do what it says. We're going to walk this out. We're going to live this out. Are you up for joining in? The second vow or pledge comes in verse 30. We promise not to give our daughters in marriage to the peoples around us or to take their daughters for our sons. Intermarriage. 
or rather giving and taking in marriage had been and still was a serious issue for them. Their own history, and those of you who know God's word will be well aware of their backstory regarding the complete mess they kept making around this subject. You can read about it in Exodus, and Deuteronomy, and Joshua, and Judges, and Kings, etc. Their own history was littered with mistakes on this one. But here they were in Nehemiah 10, putting down a marker to abstain from it, to pack it in. This obviously wasn't a racial or an ethnic issue. Please don't think it is. It's a religious one. And the danger of diluting their faith was the real risk that was associated with this practice. You see, people, some people, great people, really wise people like Solomon had messed up in this area and ended up being compromised. And as you come into the New Testament, we all know that there are strong words and warnings regarding marrying someone who doesn't share your faith. But if we zoom out a little, there is a wider principle at stake here that centers around purity and godliness and holiness. And so the commitment that's actually being nailed here is about being set apart. It's about being different in the right sense. It's about being in this world, but not of it to use another New Testament idea. You see, the people of God wanted to affirm or reaffirm their distinctiveness. They were different. Their values, their lifestyle choices were going to be God-honoring, God-glorifying. And so they made a commitment. Here's the second commitment. They made a commitment to godly distinction. And again, I ask you this morning, are we up for that? Do we need to do that in general, general or in particular in specific areas of our lives? I read this challenge during the week. Can you identify at least five things that makes you distinctive or distinctively different from a non-believing friend, colleague, or neighbor? That if asked, why do you do that or why do you not do that, you would reply, because I'm a follower of Jesus Christ and I'm a friend of God. Now, I know I'm fully, that's one of those questions, isn't it? And, and lots of you are like giving me a stare. <laughs> but that is one of those. But can you think of at least five distinctives? Five areas of life where you're, you're distinctly different. But the main issue I want us to face up to and wrestle with is our commitment to holiness and to holy living and whether we need, whether I need to make certain decisions around particular issues that threaten to compromise me. A commitment to godly distinction. A written commitment to godly distinction. The third commitment comes in verse 31. When the neighboring peoples bring merchandise or grain to sell on the Sabbath, we're not going to buy from them on the Sabbath or on any holy day. Every seventh year we'll forgo working the land and we'll cancel all debts. You see, as far as wider society was concerned at this time, every day was a good day to do business. Every day was a good day to make money. But for these people, for the people of God, they knew that the Sabbath day, was that not to be different? 
Is that not to be a day of rest, a, a gift to enjoy, a day to set aside from normal patterns and routines in order to be restored and refreshed and renewed? And they also knew they were to give the land a break every seven years. It was to lie unplowed and unused for 12 months, according to Exodus 23. Plus, at the end of every seven years, they were to cancel all debts owed to them by their fellow Jews, to quote Deuteronomy 15. Now, there was a clear sense here of keeping the law and renewing their commitment to keep the law. But for us who are not under law, but we're under grace, according to Paul, who writes that in Romans 6, we may think, well, hang on a minute, is this not now an irrelevance? Does this really relate and connect with us in 21st century Western society? But again, I think there are wider issues here for us to consider, and let me highlight the obvious one of it is the issue of Sabbath. The principle of Sabbath still applies to us today. The fourth commandment is not an irrelevance. There is a time to rest and gather for worship. There is a need for rhythm in our weekly schedules. We need to rest from work, but you know something to be entirely biblical? We need to work from a place of rest. That's the way the created order dictates. So whenever God created humanity on the sixth day, the first thing they did on the seventh day was rest. And then they worked from a place of rest. Whereas most of us, what are we doing? We're knocking our pants and resting from a place of work. It's not the way it's meant to be. We need to rediscover Sabbath rest. Sabbath is a vital Christian practice, and some of us might need to make certain written commitments, maybe, regarding our use of time. Regarding our use of time. The final area of commitment, I know there's so much more I could say. The final area of commitment relates to their giving their financial giving to God and towards God's work. You see, from verses 32 to 39, they say, Do you know, we're going to pay our temple tax. We're going to supply all the resources that's needed, the wood and the sacrifices, and we're going to give our first fruits and our tithes. And again, coming out again and zooming out of this again, there is certainly a challenge here regarding our money and how we use our money, and what we do with our money, and our willingness to give. And it's not about me being, or anybody being specific. Even the mention of a tithe is confusing. Because in the New Testament, the standard for giving for Christians is not the tithe. Not in the New Testament. The standard for giving is rather as the Lord has prospered you. In other words, it's about generosity. It's about an attitude of the heart. It's not simply about a sense of duty. And again, there's so much more I could, I could say on that, but, but having reconnected with God and his word and having confessed their sins, the people of God in Nehemiah 10 make a firm commitment with God. And they make it in writing. And they say in, in light of what we've read, in light of having confessed our sins, 
we want to make certain pledges. And this morning, I invite us to do something similar. I invite us to stand before God and respond by making or remaking commitments to him around these issues. A commitment to not only listen to God's word, but to do what it says. So in other words, it's an invitation to a commitment to obedience. Secondly, it's a commitment to distinctive godly living, to honestly reflect on purity and what is it that distinguishes us as the people of God. It's a commitment or a recommitment to holiness. Thirdly, it's a commitment to Sabbath, true Sabbath. A commitment to rest. And fourthly, it's a commitment to give more to God. It's a commitment to generosity. And as we consider this and respond further, and we've got about 15 minutes and Steve's going to come and the guys are going to come and going to lead us in a time of response and in a time of worship, let me invite you, in light of God's word, to consider making a commitment on one of those issues, on all of those issues, and even consider putting pen to paper. Stephen.